and Tarek record their podcast right after their Monday night city council meetings. So when District 1 and 6 want to know what their council members think about the meeting, all they have to do is press play the next morning. I would say what distinguishes this show, but there really aren't any shows like it yet to distinguish it from. So I'll say the real cherry on top of this for me is that Larkin is a Democrat while Tarek is a Republican. So they're giving their respective constituents a unique opportunity to hear perspectives from different sides of the aisle on the issues that matter most to them. You're listening to R&D in the QC with Tariq Bakari and Larkin Eggleston. This week on the program, we discuss the 2018 election update, the fire department, CNIP, and infrastructure spend. This is Valerie Borderline with the Wall Street Journal. You're listening to R&D in the QC. These guys are hilarious. All right, welcome to episode seven of R&D in the QC. We've got a lot of topics tonight. We just had our first business meeting of the month. And first, 2018 election update with Larkin Eccleston. Yes. Bring it bring it to us, my so, friend. So plan on getting one of these for probably this episode and the, and the two thereafter. Uh, if you're enough of a political nerd to listen to our show, you're enough of a political nerd to care about who filed today. So, In fact, you probably already know. So we'll, well just recap what you already we'll know. Do, we'll do this quickly then in case you're <laughs> like me and it's it's like Christmas morning. You're updating, oh, your, uh, you're updating the We're webpage. We're our friendship right now. Continue. All right. So uh, today was the first day of filing. It opened at noon, Mecklenburg Board of Elections. So Big Dem Day out there. Right? It was. So a lot of our Mecklenburg delegation for the... North Carolina House in particular, uh, but also some of our North Carolina senators, uh, all filed today. So there's not too many surprises. All incumbents from the Mecklenburg delegation, both Democrats and Republicans, both House and Senate, either have filed or are expected to file for re-election. So there's no surprises there. Um, the ones that we did have that kind of popped up as folks who we either knew were going to run against incumbents and did file today to confirm that, or maybe ones we didn't know that filed today I'll, I'll mention real quick so in state house senate or in, i'm sorry in state senate district 38 uh, currently held by senator joel ford uh, there have been rumblings of mushtaba mm-hmm. muhammad and uh, our colleague councilwoman luana mayfield running neither filed today but uh, perennial candidate roderick davis did mm-hmm. former uh candidate for north carolina senate charlotte city council Charlotte mayor and probably other things. So, so the big question on that one, if I remember correctly, is with the redrawing of the district lines, is our count, our, our colleague Luana Mayfield still going to run? And if so, is she going to move per the, the, the law that allows being grandfathered in a year right. after you run and are elected to move into the district if you've been drawn out? It seems she is still intending to run. Um, we'll obviously have to wait to see when she files, and it would then require that she move uh, for her to represent that district. In District 39, currently held by Senator Dan Bishop, um, Chad Stashowitz filed today. He's the only one that filed for that seat today, though. Senator Bishop's expected to have both a primary opponent and we know now a general opponent. One that I don't know, maybe some of the listeners do, State Senate forty, State Senate District 40, uh, currently held by Senator Joyce Waddell. She did file for re-election today. Mr. Bobby Shields filed as a Republican candidate in that race. Mm. Don't know Mr. Shields, um, but she will have a general election opponent. In House District 99, currently held by Representative Rodney Moore, former city council member Nassif Majid filed today to run against Representative Moore. 
Um, Nassif, I believe, served on the city council back in the 90s mm -hmm. uh, and currently serves on our planning commission. Uh, so that could actually be a really interesting race. Uh, he's got pretty good name ID. Both of them do. Uh, in county commission, no surprises today. Two incumbents filed. Uh, county Commissioner Leak and J County Commissioner James both filed to, to run for their respective Did districts. Did they file together? Do we know? I, I highly doubt they filed <laughs> together. Um, not best of friends, I'm told. But in District 4, where uh, we do know the one county commissioner that is retiring is Dumont Clark, County Commission District 4, and one of the um, at least two expected candidates in that race, Lee Altman, did file today. The only other interesting one was Sheriff. Sheriff Irwin Carmichael is running for re-election. He filed today, but so did Gary McFadden, um, mm. former detective and also star of some TV crime show that I don't watch, so I can't think of the name of it. But um, So that could actually be a very interesting race, too. And I'm very interested in learning more about this show. Great. Let's move on quickly from that. All right. Tonight's meeting. Fire. So listen, <laughs> Wait, well, for, you're a fire guy. I am. So, uh, although I've had to take a leave of absence, I'm, I'm now, um, well, let me tell you, I, I walked in with the common folk. You, you like to go through the back secret bat entrance into the back of the council. I walked down with the regular people. Well, no I want to see what's are. going on. That's that, that too. Um, so I walked down in there immediately. I, I had forgot that we had a little heads up. They were going to show up in force. They were all dressed up in their, um, what do you call that? The suits, fire, no. not, not fire suits, obviously. The stuff, fancy Go fire, ahead. I just want to hear you keep trying suits. to come up with. What do they call fancy fire suits? We're going to go with fancy fire suits. They dress. Were, they were, yes, they were They're in their dress uh, attire. So it, See, it, you don't even have a, a shirt, name for it. shirt and tie. It was impressive is my point. Well, normally I came you call in dress there. whites, but they were dress blues. That's so. right, dress blues. So uh, I came in there. Thank you for letting me flounder there. And that was impressive. And then we got up at the front and um, they came up in the public forum, probably like seven, eight, nine different folks. And it was really just positive messaging. And um, it, two things happened there. One, I was like, yeah, great. I'm, I'm so glad. And having known there a little bit of the history of some, a few negative news stories that has occurred, I jumped right to social media, which we can do now and just asked the question, Great to see everyone here. You know what? What I'm just curious is this just a general outpouring of support, or is there a specific ask or something? And uh, someone actually responded back to me pretty quickly and was like, you know, with all, with some of the negative stories and so much good that's happening all the time in the fire department and serving us, uh, we felt obligated to um, to you know come out in force and basically show 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 the community uh, how much we think and feel. Uh, about our our brethren so i guess as a question to you as a as a as a firefighter yourself i mean d does that resonate with you what what's what are we doing wrong to not support them right now well i don't think that the message was that we aren't supporting them i think the goal tonight was for them to try to change the narrative because there have been a couple of stories uh in the news lately and a couple they they made mention of some letters that we've received as counsel from either current or former employees of the Charlotte Fire Department that, that highlighted some negative things. And anything, any entity with with as many people working there as Charlotte Fire has or just, you know, the city or whatever, there's always going to be, obviously, um, some conflict, some interpersonal drama. But I think they wanted to change the narrative and say, don't let that paint a picture that, that there are not awesome people at Charlotte Fire and that there's not an overwhelming majority of employees there that love what they do, love the people they work with. Um, you mentioned there were, I think it was eight or nine speakers from Charlotte Fire and they, they paraded in front of us a very diverse group of folks. They did. Um, 
some members of the immigrant community, um, people of uh, lots of people of color, male, uh, female, yeah, different, uh, different genders and, and different people who'd been there three years and people who'd been there 29 years. So, I mean, it did kind of run the gamut of who is a part of the Charlotte fire department. As you mentioned, I'm a volunteer firefighter at Long Creek, which is a County, uh, volunteer department. But a lot of the guys that I work with, um, they work also with Charlotte fire. And I can tell you, to a person there and a small sample size, it's a you know, dozen or so of them that I work with that are also Charlotte, but they seem to really enjoy what they do at Charlotte. And I can tell you that from a volunteer perspective and doing a lot of training that I've done with people from smaller townships or, or county departments uh, around our area, it is a coveted spot to be, to get a spot in Charlotte fire Academy um, and to have an opportunity to work for that organization. And it really is something that, that every other area firefighter is striving for. I guess my question back to you specifically on this is for them to feel the need to mount a large campaign an orchestrated effort of probably, you know, 70, 80 people all dressed up on a Monday night and eight or nine folks to come speak and not ask for anything. Just say how much the, the, the the fire department means to them from a diverse perspective. Uh, You know what? Something's got to be missing. I have to be missing because you don't just do that. Well, we also know we've got an interim fire chief and that that interim fire chief will okay. be replaced in probably the near future. Uh, I think he actually is planning on retiring and, and we'll hire somebody uh, who we anticipate having. So that does job this have term. something directly to do with that? It, I think it could. I think, again, it might change the narrative to say, don't let the handful of negative stories you've heard. And we've often complained that people only come either email us, call us or show up at these meetings to talk about something they're upset about. And we've, we've actually gone so far as to specifically ask people to come and tell us things they support, things they're excited about, things they enjoy. Yeah. And so that's what happened. And I think we should relish it, but I think changing the narrative in, as we go kind of towards hiring a long-term fire chief, maybe it was just that they didn't, they thought, well, if, if we're changing the leadership at the top and city council has this false narrative of, of negativity, you know, maybe they, kind of flip the whole thing over and, and could this be an argument house or I don't know could this be an argument for them between in, an internal promotion to that versus an external is that kind of where you're going it, with it that? definitely could yeah I mean if if we had a false sense that there was some sort we of we might bring in someone from the outside rotten core that makes you know, sense. in this department that is it's seeping out in, in ways where people are discriminated against they don't feel part of the team or whatever then we'd say well we got to bring in an outsider and and break that shake that up break that yeah. up Maybe they're saying, look, we got great people here and the next fire chief deserves to be somebody who's been in this community and been a part of this department. And, and so that very well could be the angle. And I, I don't, there wasn't an ask, but I think it, it surely had to do something with this impending leadership change. So, uh, and I, I did ask as, as part of my uh, end comments that I get to have uh, the, the city manager to, we obviously need to get behind that and and see where we can do what we can do to help and, and help promote their voice. But again, what I asked the city manager was we were focusing on CMPD when I asked him to, to come up with a marketing campaign that raises the good. Everyday little things. Got police officers rolling your, your garbage can up when you're on vacation. We need to do that for fire, too, I think. So I'll, I'll be looking forward to, to, to looking into there. But just to see where this story goes, because it does strike me as strange they would invest that kind of time and organization into what they were doing tonight um, just to come with a with a message of, you know, we are great and we love what we're doing. Well, and I know we want to get on to another topic, so I'll, I'll wrap this up. But I I think, too, that, you know, they talked about how, and I just talked about how coveted a position in Charlotte Fire is. And we and they talked about the reputation that Charlotte has not only 
regionally and nationally, but internationally as far as our accreditation yeah, levels and the ratings impressive. that we've yeah. received and, and how we're really in a, we're a world-class fire department. So that kind of branding for, for a fire department is critical and valuable. And I think that they probably feel even their own internal pride, but then a pride for the department, they feel the need to defend that when they feel like that's being undermined. And they look to you as a representative up here. Yeah. One of them to do them right, man. Couldn't believe none of them gave me a shout out for being a volunteer firefighter. Well, they want to see which way you're going to vote. <laughs> yeah, I guess, well, in the end of all this. So, listen, before we move to our third and last topic of the day, infrastructure. Usually, uh, when we do something together that re- has some kind of relative relevance or touch point to the podcast in the off we in the week in, in between uh, podcast episodes, uh, you know, we'll give a shout out while we're here and. You and I had a great, uh, great little session on Flashpoint with Ben with Thompson. Friend of the pod, friend of the pod, Ben Thompson. Friend of the pod. Now we can say that. Uh, I don't know if we should apologize to him. We, we did make him turn <laughs> beet red. If you have not seen that, there's a link on I think both of our Facebook pages and, and Twitter as well. Yeah. Man, this that was an incredible moment. Now we also did get our own chops busted a bit by uh, both of us wearing bow ties. Yeah, if you're listening to the radio show and you've never actually laid eyes on either of us, first of all, first so, of all, sorry. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Uh, you probably assume both of us were very handsome, but... Um... Well, only one. <laughs> we'll argue over which. But, um, so I, I do typically wear a bow tie. Tarek thought it would be comical if he also wore a bow tie for our joint television appearance. And instead, Tarek decided to not only wear a bow tie, but to wear some sort of 1930s vest... And um, so a couple of the Twitter comments referenced us as like pre-prohibition bartenders. Yes. Yes. Um, or yeah, speaking. Should I read should I, like like mean tweets? Should I read yeah, uh, a no, couple of the good? No, there were a couple good Our ones. Friend man. of the pod, Sam Spencer, made reference to like some late 1800s politicians. Yes, he um, did. He did. So so we caught a little bit of grief, but it was uh it was really fun. We always have a good time with Ben, and if, if for no other reason, go watch us make Ben blush as we give him a hard time about the Olympic promos he's been doing for NBC. Oh, man. It's, it's, it's like a, it's like a cross between an Olympic promo and a glamour shot photo shoot. Yeah. And... Like middle school, like, like, you know, crazy yeah. glamour, glamour shoots. It's, it's pretty amazing. Here's so the, here's the best. This one came from our, our buddies over at the, uh, at the, uh, Charlotte podcast, uh, breaking members of Charlotte city council just announced new plans to open a speakeasy on the 15th floor of the government center. The only problem there was, I think a couple of people actually, didn't get the joke and, and we're wondering about yeah yeah, yeah. just if like we were probably going don't to have now. an unofficial bar <laughs> on the 15th floor which we might but we, we, we won't we won't tell you okay so our final topic infrastructure and we're going to just hit this one from two angles one our kind of more local cnip conversation we had tonight and two our mayor just returned a little bit uh late into the meeting because she's fresh off a flight from dc uh meeting with the president and several others on the infrastructure um uh initiative and legislation uh, that's coming out of there. So let's just start with CNIP and let's keep this brief because for our listeners, we've talked about CNIP and, and the investment plan several times here. But what jumped out at you? Because I know what jumped out at me, but what jumped out at you? CNIP, Comprehensive Neighborhood, Neighborhood Improvement, Improvement Plan. plan. Um, yes. We should start. We need to make sure we're defining our acronyms. Yes. Um, so one of the things that I touched on and I, I followed up with Braxton uh, Winston, our colleague. Friend of the pod. Friend of the pod. I followed up with him after his comments because I think he and I hope and maybe some others uh, misunderstood, I think, what I was getting at. But one of the things we talked about was we invest in all sorts of types of projects. And so we're investing in affordable housing or uh, diverse price point housing. We're investing in, in infrastructure, things like sidewalks and roads and, and whatever it is, greenways. So 
I made the point, I said, and I, I genuinely didn't know the answer to this question when I asked it. I said, has it been a practice or a habit of the council to lead with one of those or the other? And in my mind, if you lead with land purchasing, land banking, working with the Charlotte Housing Partnership, Charlotte Housing Authority to lock in the affordable housing before you make the infrastructure improvements, then not only are you getting it at a lower rate for the city and you'll be able to maximize those dollars like housing trust fund dollars and stretch them further, but you're also able to lock in the residents there. You're able to give them more secure housing long-term at a price point that they can afford. Whereas if you go in and you do the infrastructure improvements first and you raise the value of everything in the neighborhood, people get displaced and you go back in and try to retroactively put in affordable housing, cost the city more and you've already lost a lot of your long-time residents. Um, so right when I heard that, I thought it made a lot of sense. And then uh, our colleague Braxton, friend of the pod, also maybe uh, 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 gave you a bit of a response, which kind of did resonate a little bit. I don't know exactly how connected it was, but he said that, um, that you know, in waiting on that infrastructure spend, there might be people who are desperately in need of it in those areas. So it, it, it kind of resonated with me like we've been talking about the locational policy versus the units in affordable housing, you know, do you get the upward mobility piece right with the locational policy or is the crisis of 34,000 heads and beds necessary more relevant there? I'm wondering, does that same argument and pushback you have apply here or not so much? I think it's a false choice in this case, because I think if you lock in a deal on a, a piece of land or a couple of parcels in an area, um, you can get that infrastructure built in the same amount of time you can get that housing built. Mm. So if we're talking about building housing or if we're talking about yeah, preserving naturally occurring affordable housing, um, you can lock that in and then immediately start the infrastructure improvements. I'm not suggesting that there be a multi-year lag on building sidewalks in these areas where we want to build affordable housing. Um, just that we don't, we don't spike the market before we look to buy with infrastructure improvements right. because we're going to lose, we're going to lose dollars in that deal that way. And we're going to lose people, um, who are going to be displaced in the meantime. You know, the, the thing that jumped out at me, not that you can't probably guess, but um, it, the, there's just this kind of, um, you know, misperception, I don't know exactly how to coin it, of, you know, District 6, which is South Park and the surrounding parks and all the area there, right? Uh, um, a lot of people have this false perception that all the money's there and all the investment is going there, when in reality... We contribute, and this, these are just two data points. Twenty-five over twenty-five percent of the of the uh, of the uh, uh, real estate tax basis of the city. Yet in the current overall, which we saw eight hundred and eighty-six million dollars CIP across the city, we account for less than two point one percent of that. So I don't think anyone in our in my district is saying, "Hey, you know, we, we don't get our fair share, and it, we just want all twenty-five percent of our money back." I think. There's a, a definite understanding of the people I associate with that we need to do our fair share and all boats need to rise and there's a lot of areas in our city that need help. But if we continue to cash cow out the infrastructure and the other capital requirements of an area of town that's churning off a lot of this revenue, it's going to be a problem we're not going to have in 15 or 20 years from now. We have to focus on the crumbling infrastructure, the terrible traffic, a lot of the things that's happening in an area that is really churning off a lot of the revenue that we're able to do a lot of the things with affordable housing today. And I'm not saying an unfair amount. I'm saying it just needs to be as nice of a place to live that people want in the future, 15 and 20 years from now. So we continue to have that opportunity and we're not coming up with needs for District 6 in 20 years from now from other areas that are growing and thriving. And I don't, I don't disagree with that point that the district six and seven um i mean just 
flat out, they don't get the same level of investment that, that the other five districts get. But the other thing I'd push back on, we saw tonight that they talked about how um, a lot of the development that's done in our city is done by the private sector. And the thing that District 6 and District 7 have yes. that a District 5 and a District 2 and a District 3 don't have is a lot of private investment going on. But so, you have to have some capital to prime that pump to start going. I mean, you, you can't just come to the table with nothing. But you you even talked about yeah. turn, making a $10 million investment turn into a $15 million investment because it triggers private investment. And so yes. I think that if, if we're investing in the Eastland area, if we're investing yeah. out you know, west of the airport, if we're investing up Beatty's Ford Road corridor, um, in my in my district, Central Avenue corridor, uh, or the plaza, I think that is a place where the private sector is not going to come in and invest on its own in the way that it is in South Park and Ballantyne. They're more built out. They, um, Yes, traffic is, is certainly an issue in South Park and, and in Ballantyne, and that's something we got to deal with, but there's not the private investment level, so we do need to prime the pump, to use your, um, to use your phrase, in the East and West Charlotte, particularly, to trigger that private investment in, in South Charlotte, they've got the motivation to make that private investment already. And they are. And so improvements are coming through the private sector, even if not through the public sector. So that's not to say that, that your point's not valid and that there could be certainly better um, equity in terms of the amount of dollars you're getting in a CNIP uh, or in a overall capital improvement plan. But um, just that I think, you know, sometimes the government does have to step in and say, we need to make sure that all of our areas are improving. If the private sector is willing to take one part of town and continuously be improving it, maybe we focus our dollars elsewhere. So let's talk about, uh, for the last little piece of this, our mayor, Vi Lyles, just got back from Washington, D.C., where she was with the president, Gary Cohen, several others, uh, talking about the and lobbying for the infrastructure program, what's happening. What we learned today, which uh, some of which we knew a little bit of before this, there were four major parts. Uh, the goal uh, is to stimulate, I think, $1.5 trillion in new investment by investing $200 billion of federal dollars, which, funny enough, priming the pump with, with dollars and then getting that to flow, uh, a nice little connection point there, and making this more of a state and, and local level ownership through partnerships. Two was, um, in their power, shortening the permitting process for projects. And we've heard a lot in the past about the case study of Australia and how it takes them 18 to 24 months to, to do things that take us 10 years here. Um, three, a rural infrastructure investments as a, as a major focus area. And four, workforce development and really training uh, folks to also um, to, to be able to, to have jobs in relation to this infrastructure spend. So it's kind of two birds with one stone. So um, you know, when you look at the the pros of that, a lot of that makes sense. Some of the cons that we've heard already I'll are... I'll handle the cons. Yeah, you go handle the cons <laughs> because I am all for it. It's going to make a ton of sense. So as a, a, a prelude here, anytime we start getting into federal politics, we, that's, we try, when we, that's when we start... It's got to be connected locally. That's when we start getting a little more partisan <laughs> yeah, yeah. and I start getting a little more salty, True. as you Good might point. imagine. Good point. Um, although 2018, blue wave. Um, mm. So a couple of the things, I mean, when President Trump got elected and I got over the initial shock... Uh, what one a of great the, day that was. Well, <laughs> one of the, yeah, we elected Roy Cooper. That was a good thing that happened that day. One of the things that I held out hope for in terms of his presidency having a silver lining for me and the things that I value was he, he talked a lot about infrastructure. And that is an issue that I don't think a single person in this country doesn't agree with we need to be investing in infrastructure so that was that was my silver lining so what about what about as it relates to local some well, of the things we've heard are so, 50 to 20 percent reduction and for things like the blue line extension well so the projects that used to be funded at like a 50 percent level from the federal government mm -hmm. now we're looking at 20 so one of the one of the things that i again you know biased opinion here admitted 
But one of the things that I, I kind of come in and scoff at is that, you know, Trump, big spender, big builder guy, and he's he's going to do all this for infrastructure. He's going to fix bridges. He's going to fix roads. He's going to fix highways. And then the report out today kind of seems like, well, we're, we're, you know, but what we mean is we want the state and local governments to really bear the brunt of this. Of this. But isn't, I mean, we just talked about the local CNIP example and you saying District 6 has more private sector funds to be able to jumpstart is that not a more sustainable and if we're going to get that if we're going to have a system that makes that happen and we're also going to you know reduce deficit or whatever else comes on the heels of something like this though i don't mean to get into that part of the debate i didn't stop (laughs) how are we reducing the deficit with any of this listen i listen i've been focused on city stuff man i I don't i don't bakari deficit hog All right. Clearly, I've gone like your wrong buddy path here. Yeah, we have some problems with that. I'm not prepared to uh, defend that. <laughs> I can okay, see that at this point. All I'm saying is that doesn't this make more sense as it relates to the same argument we made in District Six of finding a way to prime the pump with a smaller amount of government taxpayer-funded dollars and getting the private sector into a vision? I hope so. I mean, I I genuinely hope it does. I just wonder if reducing the federal um, assistance on a lot of these projects is going to mean that they never happen and so and i think it could mean that for us here so i can't imagine what it might mean in rural north carolina right. if where they don't have the local dollars we have and some of the projects i think that we want to see um through to completion are going to be hard for us to do if we're only getting 20 percent from the federal government so if in sanford north carolina they want to do a project you know they're they're probably way more shoestring than we are and, and obviously the state can step in and help some i i hope that it doesn't mean that a lot of these projects don't get done because some of them are critically important all across the country, rural and urban. Um, and I, again, I still hold out hope that that's, for me, the silver lining of this presidency is that there is progress made on on infrastructure. Um, and, and one of the things you said is shortening the timeline and shortening yeah, some of the burdens. Big. It is, and I don't disagree in principle with trying to eliminate unnecessary regulation where it slows things down to the point of preventing them from happening. Um, one of the, the hot takes I saw today uh, from a reliable source was that one of the things they looked at, and and Mayor Lyles mentioned that Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke was there today, um, is that this bill, as it's written, now granted it's going to go through Congress, it's going to get chewed up and spit out and look different, but as it sits, this bill would allow for drilling in national parks without the permission of Congress. So that, to me, is something that is probably a piece of bureaucracy that is worth keeping on the books. Because um, having, vis- having just visited several <laughs> of these national parks two years ago, I don't necessarily want to see Yellowstone being drilled for resources. So, you know, there, there, some regulation is unnecessary. We, we would both agree on that. Uh, I would contend, and I think you'd agree that some regulation is necessary. And so I hope that we don't, we don't, I'm going to throw the baby out with the bathwater is the wrong analogy here, but I, I hope we don't say because, some regulation is bad, then all regulation is bad, and, and just clear the whole slate. And then there's no regulation, and people are just doing whatever they want. And some of that kind of stuff, uh, you know, we can't fix later on. True. So we neglected to mention uh, when we started this whole thing that we are not in our normal studios today. We are not. We actually are in spacious content. I mean, this today. is like, I don't know how the sound quality is going to be. We don't have time to explain why. Th- th- it's a really long story, but let's just say. It involves Tark locking stuff in his car. There's things locked away that we cannot get to. So now we are actually, for the first time ever, in a studio. And I got to say, there's. In the basement. In the basement of the government center. It's really nice. It's got there's lights. Larkin, you, you're sweating pretty profusely. It's really hot in here. I mean, you're, this is some 
serious sweating. I don't know right if now. it's the lights. I'm reminded. What's the... that movie where the guy's like sweating and he's doing the interview? You know, and he's like, "We're giving 110." percent You know, I have the... no idea what you're talking on. about. But good, good story. Everyone who saw uh, that movie knows what I'm talking well, about. <laughs> they can they can tweet us or Facebook us. Yeah, some um, other time. Speaking of which. That's a good point to wrap up because we do want you to like our Facebook page, R&D mm-hmm. the QC. Make sure you're listening to us on iTunes. Uh, we've got a link we'll post on our Facebook page for the non-iTunes users as well. Whoever you are out there. Rate. I'm one of you. Rate <laughs> rate, and share our show. Um, we've been getting a lot of great feedback on it, and we want to keep bringing you interesting, relevant content that you can keep up with what's going on in Charlotte. So we appreciate you guys listening to Episode 7. We will look forward to seeing you next week. Any closing thoughts, Tark? You did it again. Excellent episode, Mark. Well, that's what I'm here for. Alright, we'll see you guys next week. Thanks for joining us. Later. You're listening to R&D in the QC with Tariq Bakari and Mark and Eggleston. <laughs>